right, folks, if you will, uh, let's find Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we'll look at just verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 27, Moses writes, he says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank and adore You, Father God. We are thankful, Father, for the opportunity to gather, Father God, for the freedom, God, to be able to practice our faith, Lord, without any... Um, God, without any... Uh, without any... Hold on it from our government, Father God, without any opposition, Father, at this moment. We're thankful for that, Father God, but I ask you, please, God, make us ever uh, mindful of that. And also, Father God, please make us, uh, make us thankful for that um, on a daily basis, Father. Bless us, Father God, that now that as we gather, we gather in your name, Father God. We gather to, to hear you declare, Father God. We gather to declare you ourselves through praise and through worship, Father God. God, I pray that these aren't hollow words, that they are not hypocritical words, but they are true and powerful words, Father God. They indicate um, a content of, of our hearts, Father God, and we are ready today, Father God, to be stronger and more complete in our faith, Father. I pray, God, that we continue to reach the lost in our community, Father. I pray, Father God, that more like-minded and like-hearted people are drawn to our midst, Father. I pray, Father God, that the the peace and the security of what goes on within this church, Father, the love that's here, Father God, and the, insist the stubborn insistence, Father God, on obedience is not something, Father God, that's, that's just a passing fancy, but that this defines us, Father. I pray that we can look back 10, 20, 30, 40, however long you, you bless us, Father God, to live and to worship here, that we can look back and we can say, God, that, that you began a, a, a powerful revival in our midst, Father God. You grew it through, through a peace and a fellowship, a brotherhood and a sister, a sense of family, Father God, that defines us. But that that sense of family, Father God, was used for the promotion of the kingdom. Bless us to do that, Father God. That no one in this room, Father God, will be here just, God, for what happens right now. But we're here, Father God, to be prepared for what must happen in our lives on a daily basis. God, we love and adore. We thank you, Father God. Please bless us now. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. <clears throat> Just in a moment before we get started, and not to waste, not, certainly not a waste, but, but I want to be economical with my time. It's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful day to be at First Baptist Church. I think... Uh, Partly so because we get the with the blessing of of uh, of welcoming missionaries home, Russell and Mike home from the field, and please um, please talk to them about their experiences. We'll get a chance later on at the end of the summer we get to hear about it in in some detail. But I know that uh, from from talking to them, they're ready to talk about it. So so please ask them about their experiences there and. And, uh, and, and be encouraged by it. We're also getting ready to send out two more. When y'all leave, Bev? Friday morning at 2 a.m. So we need to pray over them before they leave. Uh, uh, Mike came home a little peaked, so he's got less than a week to get back to full strength before he has to go out and do it all over again. 
Um, bad boot camp. There you go. Praise God for that. Um, we still have girls in the mission field. Um, we have taken out a whole group of missionaries. We still have some of our young ladies in the mission field scattered around the globe, throughout the country and the globe. And it's, a, once again, a great blessing to be a part of that. That is part of the great work that God's doing within our church. And we don't deserve any credit for this. You don't deserve any credit for doing what God, without a doubt, has told us to do. He deserves all the glory and all the credit. Now, at the same time, I want to talk about uh, uh, all the rest of us. And I want, to, I want to use what we talk about today to prayerfully be important for someone. Um, I'll be blunt with you. As much opposition as what I have to say has had uh, in my life and in the circumstances of my life, um, I can't help but conclude that there are things here that the devil would prefer were unsaid. Were unsaid. So therefore, I'm going to boldly do my best to say them. If they are rough, I apologize. I pray for our, our, our God the Holy Spirit to smooth those things out. Um, one of the most incredibly difficult truths concerning the world that I have to cope with on a daily basis is the propensity for people to dishonor and abuse themselves or others. Now what I meant by that, and this is kind of where I began this journey, was my goodness as I grow older in Christ. And I'm sure you can attest to this when you grow, grow older in Christ. You may still be immune to suffering right around you. And the reason for that is very, very simple. We could... It's very hard to feel sorry for your actual brother sometimes, isn't it? Anybody got a brother? Is it some, it's sometimes hard to feel sorry for them? Yes, Joe says. Amen. It's that one. Yes, sometimes. Um, he knows them too well, and he knows that they make their own messes a lot of the time. Mine do too. I've got, I've got one just like that, and, and often, much I love him, oftentimes he creates his own problems. It can be easy to, to not be moved by that. We have to try. We've got to work hard and grow in Christ like that. But at the same time as you grow in Christ, sometimes you turn the television on. Does it ever just bring you to tears? You see what people do to themselves and do to others? See the callous nature of the world? I mean, I see that and sometimes I just can't take it anymore. I long for the return of Jesus so that we don't have that anymore. So that I can honestly look up and say, God, I know the suffering's over. Good, bad, or indifferent, Father God. I know that kind of suffering is over. It doesn't mitigate hell, which we're going to talk about a little bit. But to see what people do to each other. Now, and here's, this is a weird thing for me to say, and I'm, I know I'm a nerd. Some people will like this, other people have no clue, and other people may even be insulted by this. I don't know. I'm, I'm always moved when I hear... Um, when I hear, you know, that song sung by Fantine in Les Mis, A Dream to Drink. I was moved by it. In fact, I was late, late last night just kind of recouping that, going back and just listening to it over and over again. Um, Les Mis is one of my favorite books of all time. It's all about suffering. It's so dark, it's so about suffering. And it's about uh, the, the natural consequences of suffering. Not so if you saw the movie, right? Uh, but what we know about Fantini is, is that Fantine's a beautiful young lady, um, uh, not wise, naive, gentle in her spirit and naive, goes out in the world, falls in love with this rich young man. What does he do? Gets her pregnant. That never happens in our world, does it? So this is 19th century France. This is 21st century United States. We're familiar with context, aren't we? 
very familiar with it. Young lady gets, uh, gets pregnant, has a beautiful little daughter named Cosette. To support Cosette, by the way, who's, a, who's abandoned by the young man, left with her problems. To support Cosette, Fantine does not sell just the hair upon her head, but her front teeth. How desperate do you have to be that you'll sell your front teeth? There's a measure of it that Hugo was not callous to. He knew what that meant. Resorts to prostitution to support her child. It's what she sings. There was a time when men were kind. When their voices were soft and their words inviting. There was a time when love was blind and the world was a song. And the song was exciting. There was a time then it all went wrong. So many people I know, I can say, it, just, it was all good and then it all went wrong. I, I thought this um, as I was writing this, that, that though my time in, in drug and alcohol counseling in this very church, I admit I have personally met those for whom the world has become as much of a horror as the character Cosette in this novel. Anything they had they could sell, they sold. Anything they had, they could give up, they gave up. And it just, the world just took more. Sin had an, had an appetite that was unappeasable. And it cost them everything. You know, the wickedness of human nature demands its own unique blood sacrifice. And this comes in the victimization of countless people. Those who are victims eventually become what? Victimizers. Those who are the most broken, the most damaged, can turn on the world and, and break the world further. What are those blood sacrifices? Individuals and whole ethnic groups decimated by greed and violence. As was said about the 20th century and the 21st century is certainly no different. The 20th, 20th century was a century in which humanity perfected murder. Invented industrial murder. I know I speak of big things, big things beyond these walls, beyond our tiny little community. They're just more glaring in the world. And they course through the fabric of our local society. Don't think they don't. Every one of those people that I met who would at any moment have sold anything, including their own front teeth, for just one tiny little moment of peace were right here. They weren't from a long way away. They were from here. Our Lord's been bearing the weight of the corruption of His creation since the earliest moments in human history. Here's the thing. We have our eyes open to it. God's eyes were never closed to it. To the very first moments when Cain slew Abel. When we turned our backs as a race on the God of our creation. When we preferred our own way to His way. God saw everything that would happen. Unstuck in time, not saddled by the way things are revealed to us. God knew it all. It all. That's what He says through Moses in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw to the depth of the soul of man and there was nothing glaring back at him of any worth whatsoever. It was all evil and madness. But here's the, 
Here's the difference. In the midst of all that madness, our Lord still to this day claims hearts from the brink of moral insanity. From the criminality of the most vile heart. And from hatred and shame that's generationless impact. Yeah, that's right. Some of us, some of us in this very room, don't just hate, but we learned to hate over generations. Virtuosos of hate. We hate for no good reason. We hate because we learned how. We were taught how. From the perspective of the gospel, it's, it's, it's madness. But simply related to you. The Christ of the Bible, Jesus, has lived and died to replace the product of sin in our lives with the righteousness that only the Savior can bring to His people. That's the great exchange. That's what's being offered today. Throughout every single line of this is that God offers today by His goodness and His mercy and nothing to do with the speaker. I'm not eligible to say these things. Too corrupt, too vile, too wicked on my own account to be able to stand before you and declare this that any way belongs to me. Jesus offers to trade the sin of your heart for His righteousness. He gets the sin. You get everything that He is. Now look, I know of, you can look at what we talked about Genesis 6-5 and that's a long, that's thousands of years ago. Thousands of years. And you can mistakenly think that because a flood lies between us and that time, that somehow the world can, under its own power, be radically different. Now, I asked this question when I was meeting with, uh, with my class this morning. I want to ask it to you now. I will, um, do you think the world is better now than it was earlier in your life. Hey, hey, look, time out. I'm going to qualify that by saying, in some minute ways, probably yes. In some minute ways, there's more justice. There's more care for certain things that God cares about than there was when I was a boy. Think about how old I am and what it spans. As I told them this morning, I think one of the reason, reasons why a lot of people from, and I'm at the tail end of a generation, technically baby boomer, even though I'm a child of baby boomers. Okay, I'm a child of a baby boomer. My first images from television were American servicemen dragged into Huey helicopters in Vietnam. Now, I was a baby. I was a little guy, five. But they were burned. I can still see them today. Like the, We only had one TV. We watched the same thing. Even for those of us whose life spans the two Gulf Wars, we just didn't see images like that. Those images were on television every single night. The wickedness of mankind was on television every night in reality. In reality, probably why there's some of us old enough that we have an aversion to violence. Because we grew up with real violence, didn't we? We saw real violence. Fake violence doesn't, doesn't do it for us. 
some ways, yes. We've seen, though, as much as that was true, we've seen the degradation of humanity more now than ever. Than ever. Now listen. If the reaction of our Lord to the corruption by sin of the human race that we see all around us is characterized by His words in Genesis 6.6, we say the Lord regretted that He made man on earth. What does He do? God regrets something about what He sees. And it grieved Him to His heart. The heart of God grieved by what He, by what he sees and the content of the character of people. God's grieved by that. Here's, here's my question. Then what could possibly be the divine reaction to a world of abortion on demand. Nearly almost 60 million American babies slaughtered in the wombs of their mothers. It's not, it's not about abortion, but even bigger than abortion. This spans beyond that. If abortion wasn't true, this would still be true. It's just America. Human trafficking. Stealing people's children away and selling them as things. Imagine it happened to one of our babies. We would never rest till we found them. We'd span the globe looking for them. We'd bring to justice, even at the point of our own guns, anyone who dared take our child, wouldn't we? And feel ourselves justified. The destruction of every institution with which our Lord has blessed the world. Everything He desired to bless us with, we've cursed. Hell is the only instrument by which God's hatred of sin and its effects can be measured and depicted. The only way to know how angry God is, is to think about hell. That's the wrath of God. The eternal, everlasting, infinite wrath of a God who's so deeply offended at what He sees. It's the infinite anger which motivates God. As Paul says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now listen. God's wrath against those of us who suppress the truth. Can I ask you a little question? Not to answer. Because I've got the answer already. Anybody in this room suppress the truth? Unless you responded in salvation to the gospel the very first time you heard it, then in your unrighteousness you suppress the truth. This verse is about you. This verse is about me. Because the only way the gospel does not save is if unrighteousness suppresses the truth. The gospel lays waste to human hearts unless in unrighteousness the truth is suppressed. The wrath of the heart of a righteous and just deity falls not automatically on our shoulders. It doesn't. Even though we were suppressors of the truth, the wrath does not fall automatically on our shoulders. Why? That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
Even though there is wrath, there is an ocean, there is an infinite ocean of wrath called hell. Even though all that is abundantly true, the lake of fire will one day be populated with those who've always suppressed the truth and never been conquered by it. Even though all that is absolutely true, understand that Jesus delivers people from the wrath to come. The wrath is just it is righteous. God is not wrong for doing it. If we, we cannot imagine being God, but from God's perspective, understand that sin is the ultimate rebellion against God. Deserving of the worst that the wrath of God can, can sow in our lives. Many in this room have been delivered from the wrath to come by the name and works of Jesus. So in response to the suppression of the truth, in res response to the wrath to come, in response to an infinite hell, we declare the name of Jesus. Not some kind of magic potion or elixir. We declare the name of Jesus as the name above every name. The name that ultimately saves. We declare the cross of Christ. We declare a finished work. We declare that Jesus saves. Our reaction today, the song of your heart all day long, must be in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 63.3, where he says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So we get back to the saints. We get back to those right now in this room who've gathered to hear the gospel because we're the only ones who can appreciate the gospel. We're the ones who've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to indwell us and inspire our hearts, to open ourselves and our lives to new proclivities. All that been done for us. Understand today what should be our one note and that should be the love and glory of God. Your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Today we're called by the Lord to sacrificially and sacramentally offer our lives and hearts to the celebration of His accomplishments of the cross. Now I said that. I know my words are sometimes complicated, but they're complicated because I really mean so much in this. Sacrificially. Listen to me. Your love for Jesus, if it costs you nothing, isn't really love at all. Loving Jesus means to give something up. Loving Jesus means to count the very cost of loving Him and saying, God, I need you anyway. Gentlemen, loving Jesus means to leave your home and go forth with the gospel. Loving Jesus means to knock on doors. Loving Jesus means to labor in His body. Loving Jesus means to risk everything. Saying it doesn't matter and is worthless for what can, cannot be bought at any price. That's sacrificial love. It's got a cost, folks. And I ask you the question, has your love of Jesus cost you anything? If it's not, then let's love Him. Let's really love Him until it costs. But what else sacramentally? As a sacrament. Something holy and set apart. You see, here's the thing. We want to have a love for Jesus that doesn't cost us anything. And we want to have a love for Jesus that doesn't change us at all. It doesn't change my tongue or my thoughts or my feelings. That doesn't challenge my work or the way I handle my money or the way I govern my household. 
We think we can love Jesus for free in terms of sacrifice, and we think we can love Jesus for free in terms of how it changes us. I'm going to tell you right now, and I'll say it to your faces, if the love of Jesus is not changing me in here, then the love of Jesus isn't understood in here. It doesn't mean you've got to be perfect. It doesn't mean the speaker's perfect either, because the love of Jesus in my life is so greatly challenged. The difference is this. I can come in and I can say, God, I know where the goal is. I know where I've got to get, God. I know where I've got to go. By the place and method of torture, Golgotha. Jesus has, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.4, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. You know, our worship, the rightful and biblical celebration of the goodness of God cannot be limited to the conduct that we display in the house of the Lord, but must infuse our lives with a timbre of humble acknowledgement and purposeful difference which glorifies our saving Lord. He bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So that God gives us not only what He promises us, but this is what's expected out of us. Die to sin, live to righteousness. The love of Christ in me is killing the sin in me. Has to be. Now look, the keys to living a radically different life for Christ, uh, which highlight His words and His work, which takes attention away from us and places it on the cross and which drives us to share His goodness around the globe and in our own hometown are displayed by two theological verisimilitudes. Two things that are absolutely undeniably true that we got to take in and we got to explore and we got to understand. One of which I preached about in the last, say, two months. But I'm going to mention it again. The other one I'm really going to go into some depth about. First one, the clear command by Christ to love your neighbor as yourself. We read that and we don't think anything about it. I'm here to tell you if you love your neighbor as yourself, it changes everything about you. I'm also going to tell you this one right here. The man who's speaking to you does not love his neighbor as himself. Not the way I should. Not the way I want to so desperately. The old habit of not loving is a hard one to break. But it's got to be preached against, it's got to be declared against, it's got to be rebuked so that God can really, through us, love us the way we uh, love each other, the way we must love each other. He says in, in, in Mark 12, 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who said that? Jesus did. It's preserved where? Within the pages of Scripture. Have martyrs died to, to, to make sure this made its way to us? Yes. The first man to legitimately, the first men to legitimately take the Bible and translate it into a vernacular tongue English died for their trouble. The blood of the martyrs is on the very pages that you read. 
God intended for this to be taken so seriously. Virtually everything wrong with the world today, the interactions between people and the endemic hatreds which scar this very nation can be attributed to our failure to love our neighbors. And we tell you, one of the most transforming things that will ever happen to us is when we start to really love our neighbors as ourselves. It won't just change outside. It'll change the pews, folks. Let's just be blunt. Within the body of believers, we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. Much less to those on the outside. The fact that Christ would cross ethnic, religious, and class lines in order to make this point to the people in front of Him through the parable of the Good Samaritan, <coughs> defining the neighbor. He, he, he drew the whole kingdom in and all its badness. And the one man that everybody universally hated was the only one who understood what it meant to be a neighbor. In response to hatred, the Samaritan loved. This should force us to believe that he is incredibly serious about the world-changing effects of loving your, loving your neighbor as you do yourself. Unfortunately, I think most of us cannot fathom how much we love ourselves. I know this to be true about myself. I want to open your eyes. I bet most people in this room don't really, can't put their finger on just how much they love themselves. We think we're better than we are. So God opens eyes. One of those things I'm hoping for today for the church is that God opens every set of eyes in this room. We start to see just how much we really love ourselves. And how stuck we are on getting everything our way. We're perfectly happy as long as everything goes our way. We get our way in every instance. The minute that's challenged, what do we do? Be blunt now, what do we do? We get mad, we get hurt, we get bruised, we feel slighted. Sad to say, but when we were two and we first pulled on the other side of that toy and screamed mine at the other kid, most humans haven't changed very much from that point, have they? We'll, we'll couch it in different terms, won't we? We'll claim it's for the good, or it's motivated by wisdom. But in the reality is it's just the same. We want our way so doggone bad. And every time we're like that, all we do is reveal that there's something wrong. Still, church with the heart. Some way the heart still needs to grow. Our self-love stands between us and the reality of loving anyone else as we are supposed to. Why do marriages fail? Husbands and wives do not love each other biblically as they should. Bottom line. Marriage fails. It fails for one reason, one reason only. There was a lack of biblical submission to love in that marriage. No ifs, ands, buts about it. It's what happened. Why do churches become self-indulgent, care about only themselves, self-centered, focus only themselves, and self-aggrandizing, I mean making themselves rich? Churches that look more like banks and country clubs than, than servant ministries? Why? They fail to love each other, the community, and the world around them. They're just failing in love. When we fail, we fail in love. 
when we succeed, we succeed because God has opened our eyes to the love that He wants us to have. Love is not incidental. It is absolutely key. As a church, if we can manage to love our neighbors, the world gets smaller. That's it. The world gets tiny. Because we love our neighbors, we expand the definition of neighbor. It, does, it extends to that person across the street that, that made you mad 20 years ago. And you have hardly talked to them since then. But it refuses, because it's biblical, to stop there. Because see, when we start to realize in our lives truly biblical aspects of the truth, then what happens? It grows and it takes over. All of a sudden, that person we had a grudge against becomes not an enemy, but a neighbor. And the person across town we've never met. And the person who's part of an ethnic group that we were taught not to like. Suddenly we can't stop the definition of neighbor because the definition of neighbor within the Scriptures has no, rad, has, no, has no biblically given limit. He didn't say, well, you can stop neighboring here. Why do we reach? Why do we have children in Laos and, and India and Oklahoma and New Mexico? Because they're our neighbors. They're our neighbors. That's why. The world gets smaller. The church grows exponentially in influence. When we really love our neighbors, people have nothing bad to say about us that's true. That's true. There's nothing they can say about us that will hold any water. When we truly begin to love our neighbors, it grows exponentially in influence and in gospel power. I'm going to tell you this, when we can, when your pastor, your pastors, your leaders, everyone in this room that is, a, that is a sold out member of this body of believers, when all of us are out there declaring, the, the showing to everyone our love for our neighbors, they will listen to the gospel. It will open doors to the gospel that have never been there before. We try to beat the door down and what we need is the key of neighborliness. Two, the big one. The biblical fact that all human beings bear within them the image of God. Even if the, if the notion of being a good neighbor doesn't wrap us around the world, the idea that every single created being bears the image of God. Creation bestowed upon a single living entity, humanity, the image of God Himself. That's what Moses says in our focal passage. Genesis 1.27, So God created man in His own image, humanity, Male and female, He created them. Or should be in the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Every single human being cast in the image of the living God. Now we talk about that way in nature, right? You've all gone someplace gorgeous or beautiful, breathtaking, right? I always use the Grand Canyon. A, I've never seen it. But it looks awesome in pictures. Can't imagine how great it looks face to face. And you look down and you say... Look at this. You just want to run around in this fit of Jesus, declaring the goodness of your God because of a hole. But it's one great hole, isn't it? It's one gorgeous hole. But we can talk like that. But that person who waits on our table is made more in the image of God than that hole could ever be. The whole declares Him. Nature declares Him. But the very image of God is created into that person there. 
the attributes of humanity are the attributes of God. They're only scarred by sin. Christ's powerful teaching that ends with Mark 12.31 is actually a standard and an exercise in love that God enables the heart of man to practice by the path of salvation. And the answer to the second greatest question of the Bible, which commanded is the commandments the most important. That's from Mark 12.28. Jesus teaches in Mark 12.29-30 concerning the commandments. Mark, Mark records, it says, Jesus answers, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We know that is the Shema Yisrael. We know this. The Jews knew this. Jesus speaks as King of the Jews into every life. At the same, t- the same time, the practice of loving God means to love His image. And to honor this image every place that it is found. If you want to love God, you have to honor the image of God as you see it in people. Why not kill the baby in the womb? Why not kill the baby in the womb? What's the greatest biblical reason for not killing the baby in the womb? Because that baby bears the image of God. An attack against a human. Why not kill another person? Why not murder? Because human beings bear the image of God. An attack on humanity is an attack on the image of God Himself. Let's look at it this way. Maybe you'll understand. I've spoken to a lot of people who've lost their parents. Lots of people in this room right here have lost both of your parents already. Some of you have been without your parents for a very long time. Very long time. It's still tender, isn't it? It's no joking matter, is it, at all? And I'm not making light of it, I can assure you. I said this because I've noticed it since I was a boy. That when you lose your parents, you become exceedingly protective over anything that reminds you of your father or your mother. Even a scrap of paper with their handwriting on it. Anything. Anything that you see that reminds you of mama or daddy becomes very precious, doesn't it? Even if it wouldn't mean, even if it's not a keepsake, if it wouldn't mean anything to anyone else, it doesn't matter because your daddy signed it. Or you knew your mama held this. That's enough. This is why people keep houses full of things they do not need. People in this room right here have inherited your parents. Well, the product of your parents' hoardings. And you didn't throw it away, did you? You kept it. Why? Memories attached. That thing isn't worth anything, but the memory is, is infinitely precious. The memory you can never get away from. If loving God means loving His image, if we can look at that idea of love and what happens with love and loss, 
And if loving God means loving His image, I submit that to you that it does, then we must find a way to love every scrap of that image. Even when it doesn't look like us or talk like us, when it does things we look down on or we hate by instinct. We look at that person across from us and we can't even call them our neighbor, but we say to this, I have to love them because in them is the image of the one I love above all others. Within them is the image of the living God. Why can I not resort to hate? Why must I resort to love? Why? Because the image of God is created within them. Even if they do things we hate, we have to love them because it's the only response we have. The only response the claimed heart has. Our nature is not to love or honor the Lord at all. Let's be honest. It's not just that we have trouble loving people. We have trouble loving the Lord who made us. We don't do it well. We don't do it by instinct. We're to force ourselves. We tend to trivialize and ignore Him. We tend to reduce His commandments given in love to enrich our lives to suggestions. To tell us that God doesn't really care about that. And my response is always the same because I have no other. Then why did he put it in the Bible? If he didn't care about how we conduct our lives, then why did he put it in the Bible and baptize it with the blood of martyrs? It makes no logical sense. The intention of hearts which have been captured by God are being remade in His image and not the world's, must be to love the image of God everywhere it can be found. Everywhere it can be found. So today, believers, how can we do this? One, love and defend human life. I told you it wasn't about abortion, but it really is. A little bit. Love and defend human life. In every way, shape, and form, love and defend human life. Our Lord spoke emphatically through Moses when He inspired the words of Genesis 9, 6. He says, Wherever, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in His own image. Why is it wrong to murder? Because God made man in His own image. Because murder is an attack on the very heart and existence of God. Abortion is an attack on the very heart and existence of God. Defend the unborn who slaughtered in the womb. Stand uh, for the rights of children and women who are victimized and prostituted around the globe. Give to the poor and needy and fight for their survival. Look, I'm going to tell you, these aren't social justice or liberal gospel issues. Christ demands them. Look at what He says through John in 1 John 3, 17-18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If my heart is closed, then John asked the question, how in the world can that person love God? If your heart's closed in this room right here, how in the world can you love God? And if from the pulpit, if my heart is closed, how in the world can I love God? How in the world? The love of God opens hearts and does not close it. He says then, verse 18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He goes through and he defines our response again. The love of Christ is only accessible if it comes in work and if it brings to our lives the impact of the truth of Christ. It makes us more conformed to God's truth. We love in word. We love in deed. God changes everything. B. Speak with dignity about other people. This hits right at home. Right here in this room right now. Friends can disagree. 
There's no doubt about that. And we will. But this truth should always limit what we are willing to say to each other. That's right. We cannot talk to each other any old way. It begins with me. I am not above this and I will not be. I must today surrender to this. But I'm not the only trespasser by any stretch of the imagination. We're not allowed to talk to each other. We're not allowed to talk to the image bearers of God in any way that we want to. So the next time your food's late in a restaurant, you have to think. The next time you get on the phone with AT&T, and that's a tall order. Because them folks ignorant. We can't just say it, can we? We can't just say what we're feeling. So now, next time someone wrongs us and it's a real, it's real. We can't just say what we think. Also, what we say when those we disagree with are not present. What we say behind their back, too. We say behind their back. And don't act like you've never... Just, just don't lie. Just please don't lie. Let's not go this far and start lying. You know good and well in church, we think we're saving face. If we don't tell them their face, we just kind of fuss at them a little bit behind their back. People do that. We blow off a little steam and then we move on because it's not big enough to go to them and cause a big uproar over. It's not. I understand that. And it's probably wise that we do it that way. That we take a little time, we, we let that air out, and then we move on with our lives and we get back to loving them the way we're supposed to. But I tell you what, if we get too aggressive and too harsh in what we say to others, we attack the image of God and we attack God. To speak harshly with others, to ignore others, or to disagree harshly with each other over trivial matters is not just inconvenient for the gospel, but appears to be sinful as it violates the sanctity of God's image. James says in James 3.9, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Be careful, church, of cursing people who are made in the image of God and then attempting to bless Him with praise. We'll go to Sunday school and fuss about somebody or fuss about somebody in the bathroom or in the hall and they'll come out here and try to sing praise with the same tongue. And we might say in our culture, you, you kiss your mother with that mouth? We understand. We understand the implications, don't we? The Father of us all, not a God of chaos, but the God of order, will not be worshipped by tongues which hate His image in practice but love it in theory. We understand it's true that we're supposed to love the image of God, but then we turn around and tear down the image of God as we see it in others. Like I said, everything that is said right here begins in the pulpit. Begins here. Finally, recover the sight of the blind by the global sharing of the gospel. Why should we, why must we do missions and evangelism in this church? Because the image of God deserves to be recovered by the work of the gospel. That when Jesus says, go out and share the gospel. 
When in verse after verse we are implored to go out and take the truth with us, we understand that it is the most Christ-centered thing we can possibly do. The most centered on the image of God thing that we can do. Sin is an attack on the image of God contained in humanity. And the gospel is the great work of respect for the image. The greatness of God, Jesus sacrificed not to hurt the image, but to recover the image as it's seen in people. Christ Jesus is most glorified. The greatest amount of value placed upon His life and His work when men and women come to Christ via the good news. When men and women come by the good news, Christ is made the most precious. When we have that. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Look, to hate the image of God in humans in any way, even accidentally or from unchallenged bigotries lingering from childhood, is satanic. By the very definition provided us in 2 Corinthians 4.4, It is not just a misstep. It's not just learning the wrong way and not growing enough. The reality is, if I can hate the image of God, there's one author of the hatred of the image of God, and that is Satan himself. Satanic to do these things. Is that strong enough language? I hope so. Satanic in its nature and injures the image of the risen Savior. By making much of Jesus, by praising Him in church and through our lives, we can be part of the image-driven kingdom of God. Everything is about declaring the greatness of the one who died and was raised for our good. The greatest affront to the dignity and image of Christ in the world is that men and women, image bearers by creation, will every day die in their sins. There's one way that God is ultimately the most insulted. God is the most insulting because people are going to die in their sins. Somebody today is going to die in their sins and face judgment. The image of God that's wrapped up in their created form to be burned forever. What could be more disrespectful? We're angry when a flag, a symbol of our nation, is, is burned. How angry should we be when a person, the image of God, suffers forever? Christ desperately warns the world in John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who, he, who I am, He, you will die in your sins. Humanity was not created as fodder for hell, but declared the glory of the Creator God throughout the ages. Eternal death in everlasting perdition is not honoring to the One who died for all our sins. When people die in their sins, it brings no honor and glory to God. None at all. Earlier... I said that the most important commandment was the second greatest question. What's the first? What's the first greatest question? It's contained in Acts 2.37 which says, Brothers, what shall we do? And it relates from that great Pentecost sermon. The hearers of that sermon's conviction over sin and the knowledge that they were undone. Those men were lost. And for the first time in their lives, they knew it. They knew it and they were desperate for help. 
Peter gives us a response, this most wonderful response we can ever hear in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But I think it's not what sometimes we fail to understand. It's so much greater than the weak way in which we can present this verse. I'm going to say today, if you are undone by sin, if you're convicted of, of the death that's in your spirit and you're so undone by your sins, then what must you do today? Repent of your sins. Turn your back on them. Curse the deadness of your former life. Hate your former life and rely on Christ completely. Everything he says in this verse is, is wrapped up in just that. Repenting of your sins and turning completely to God. This is what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Not an action or a sacrament, not water baptism and a word said, and all of a sudden somebody's different. The Bible has never supported that. Not an action or a sacrament, not water in the name, but to be immersed completely in the person of Jesus. Baptized, immersed in the name of Jesus. Lost in Jesus. The heavenly authority and accomplishments of Jesus. I was once dead, and now I've lost myself in Christ. I was once dead, and now I've turned my back on my life, and I've given everything to the one whose name is above every name. I don't tr we, don't, we trust no one else. Value no one else. Love all through Him. Let Him direct everything and today lose yourself in the Word and work of Christ. That's baptism. Immersion in Jesus. To die to the world and live to only the Savior. Doing this today will save you eternally. There's no amount of water and there's no superstitious declaration that will change you but surrendering heart and life and will today to the one who died to make you whole will. Today is the day of salvation for someone. And we cry out today that someone will hear. Church, today, if your problem is in love or in the image of God or in the love of a neighbor, then we have business at the cross today. There's no doubt about that. The church has been confronted today but there's one among us who has suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. You've come to a place where everyone at some point in their lives has suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. Come today. Let's reason together. Hear the gospel and let it change your life. Let's stand together. Father God, I love and I adore you, God. I thank you for the opportunity, Father God, to come and to be made whole in you, Father God. I thank you, God, that you've given us so much. You've blessed us so much, Father God. You've loved us so much. I'm praising you now, Father God. And I'm asking God that you could have uh, a sway over every heart in this room, Father. Every single one of us, Father God, all of us who hear this, Father God, I pray, God, that you would struck our hearts that we need it, God. I need it so bad. I do. You need to look so much like you, Father God. And love stands in the way. Bless us to love you the way we should. Father God, bless us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Bless us, Father God, to love your image and to defend it for